If you would, turn the Bible to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a minor prophet, the second from the last one from the Old Testament, page 874, if you're going to be using a pew Bible there, those black Bibles in the pew. Zechariah chapter 9. Now, I know if you've been here, you're thinking, wait a second, Josh, you only read the first six verses of chapter 1 last week. And uh, now I'm all the way to chapter 9, and if you know anything about Zechariah, it gets really, really, really uh, heavy there. And so, no, I'm not, I'm not taking the easy way out. I'm not skipping those uh, all together. We'll get back there. But I'm going to show you something today that you're going to absolutely like. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the Sunday before Easter. Today is the day that the Bible tells us of Jesus' triumphal entry when he entered into Jerusalem uh, on his way to be crucified just five days later on that original Good Friday. So today's Palm Sunday. It's the day he rode in humble, humbly, and they worshiped him. Some did. They worshiped him as he came in, recognizing him as the king, all right? But you're going to see something today in that triumphal entry that connects it back to Zechariah that is just absolutely incredible, uh, outstanding. And I hope, because we've been in the Minor Prophets, that you're just going to be more and more intrigued and encouraged and built up and excited uh, because this New Testament Easter theme, this Palm Sunday stuff, um, is here in the book of Zechariah. It's not a stretch. I mean, I'm not reaching to make this happen. It's, it's right there. Matter of fact, it's the only place. Where it is, it is in Zechariah, and that's really, really, really cool. It's Easter week, though. That's what Palm Sunday means, and you know that, right? We're getting started right now. Today's Palm Sunday. Jesus enters in, and we have a lot going on. Thursday will be Maundy, Maundy Thursday, uh, the day in which Jesus would have done the, the Last Supper with the disciples, the day that he washed their feet. Uh, that's a really big deal. And then Friday, the day that Christ is crucified, and so we started a few years ago a Good Friday service. Now, it's a lot different. We're going to focus more on the crucifixion, and I know that that is a little bit odd to focus more on the crucifixion than the resurrection, but we're, we're, we're keeping in mind that uh, we're we'll be here Friday, but we're aware that Sunday's coming, right? The third day is, is just three days away. And so uh, we're going to have a Good Friday service here. It's not very long. Start at 6.30, we'll be done by 7.30. We're gonna focus in on that. We're gonna prepare ourselves to look at Jesus died so that when he's alive on Sunday, it means even more. That's what happens on Friday. We have nothing on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, we're gonna have a sunrise service here. Now, we have this amazing idea and we almost got a little bit too far ahead of ourselves over here in Fairdale by the roundabout, they have what they call now green space, official Fairdale green space. And they're about to build like seating and a stage and, and all of that. It's going to be really, really nice right here beside the bank, okay? And I've already gotten permission for us to start having our sunrise service there. It's going to be awesome. We'll have to have it here. We'll have it there in the middle of Fairdale and open this up to anybody and everybody, all churches. And we will preach out in the loud and open and worship there. And we were going to go ahead and do it this year. But the logistics of stage and chairs and sound and everything, since they don't have it built yet, is not going to work, okay? So the sunrise service here a week from today will be here out front on our front lawn and our, for, our front porch. That's at 7 a.m. But as they're supposed to build that and it be here by, by summertime, all right, that's supposed to be finished by late summer, next Easter, 
our sunrise service hopefully will not be here on our property, we'll be there right in the center of town where we can be out in the open and hopefully have a more of a witness and more of a reach, okay? And then we will have a set that, that sunrise service, then we will have 1045 morning service. It's a lot that goes on Easter week, and I hope you're ready to take it all in. I hope, because I, I don't know what it is about spring, but I feel, I feel more kind of like anxious than I normally do. I feel kind of overwhelmed. I feel kind of kind of stressed. There's a lot going on. It might be because I got you know five kids playing little league baseball. <laughs> that might, might be what it is. Uh, but it seems like a lot of things are contributing to that. And uh, here's what I recommend to myself first, but also to you all: Do not, at whatever attempt or, or effort you have to give, do not miss all that the Easter season is. Don't do that. It is so good, it is so deep, it is so central to all that we are. You know, Christmas is a big deal, the coming of Christ, but Easter is like the biggest. He died and he lives. Take it in. If there are extra Bible studies, extra devotions, if there are are sermons, if there is worship, if there is something Uh, to increase your faith, to help you, to push you to look more at God. Take it in. I realize you may have a Friday night routine, but if there's a chance you could be here, do it, right? I realize that 7 a.m. is crazy early for church, but it's awesome, right? Try to get focused on the Lord and take in all that Easter is. We actually started it yesterday with with the egg hunt, and I'm so thankful to our church. I really want to to say a big thank you. There were so many volunteers yesterday. We had the big community egg hunt. A few years ago, we started this, and we maxed out at about 300. Two years ago, 400. Last year, we had 500 meals prepared, and we ran out. Yesterday, we gave out over 900 meals, almost 9,000 eggs gobbled up by those kids in like 30 seconds. (laughs) Truly. It was awesome. It was awesome to see that many people on the football field and be able to tell them about Jesus and be able to love and, and serve them. You know, I was thinking a lot about that because it's a big event, and you know that I'm real careful for us to not just be busy, and I'm real careful for us to not put on a show. I, I hope you know that about me and us. We're not here to entertain. We're here to help people find God. That's what we're about. We exist to proclaim Jesus um, while loving and serving both God and people. That's our, that's our mission statement. So we've been thinking long and hard about something like an egg hunt because clearly there are a lot of people that will just go to an egg hunt and never really think twice about God or, or church or anything like that. You know, and I've been thinking. And I was thinking of how, how much I, and I hope many of you all, enjoyed yesterday from a serving perspective. We gave a lot. Some of you all were probably here uh, eight to ten hours working really, 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 really hard. Okay, And I enjoyed it. And I hope, I sure hope it wasn't a bitter burden to you to do that. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed giving of ourselves uh, for that event. Here's what I got to thinking about. The Lord Jesus, without a question, was the happiest guy ever. He was happy. And the Lord Jesus was, without question, the holiest guy ever. So whichever direction you lean, you want to be more holy, you want to be more happy, he was both, right? He was the happiest and he was the holiest guy ever. Jesus is, that's one of the reasons why we study him, because we just want to see what he's like. And you know what Jesus said? 
Jesus said that he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was a part of who he was to be serving, to be giving. And there's something in that when you have the right perspective that says, that makes me happy. That's one of the ways that God is making me holy by faith in Christ. And I want us to really understand that there is something huge in giving. And that's why we do egg hunts. We weren't expecting anything in return. We wanted to bless the community, want to love on people in hopes that it would build a relationship, in hopes that it would open a door, in hopes that it would make all types of contacts and connections and for the opportunity for us to tell them about Jesus, which we did yesterday. And I hope that you understand that. You know, there's a tendency for you to think that your happiness is completely wrapped up in your, your bucket list. Or your big dreams. You may have a bucket list. I'm okay with them. I think I got two things on my bucket list. And one of those is to one day uh, show my kids Africa. And the other one, I just told Val about this week. You have to ask her about what that bucket list item is. Uh, I don't have a lot of bucket list items. Sometimes serving all day at an egg hunt is bucket list as it gets for me. It's awesome. But I want to encourage you to think about true happiness and holiness being found in giving of yourself. Stop thinking if somebody did this for you or if somebody did that for you or if you could go here or get this or if you, I mean, literally some of y'all think if you win the lottery, things will be better and they won't. You know, I know we all could use a little bit more money, don't get me wrong, but you know what I'm saying. Start looking to the Lord Jesus about giving. You know, ever since the world began, we've been, well, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we've been in this position of being needy. Some of y'all really wish right now you had a deeper friendship. Just one good friend that you could talk to about everything and cry with. Some of y'all right now really think if I just had a little bit more money, things would be better. Some of us wish we had children. Some of us wish we didn't. Some of us wish we had, some of us wish we had better jobs. You know, it's like we, we just need a little bit more is what we think. But all of those desires, please hear me, this is where you and I are gonna, gonna have attention on whether we agree or not. All of those desires are met in God. I believe that wholeheartedly. All of your desires are satisfied in Jesus. I believe that to the core. And so it's, are we gonna, are we gonna get there to where we trust him and understand what that means. You may, you may have some health needs, you may have some financial needs, you may have some family needs, you may have some emotional love, support needs, but bigger than that, God can meet those needs or satisfy those needs without meeting those needs, either one. And Palm Sunday is pointing us to that. The Bible says he's coming. Listen to me. The Bible says he's coming. He says it twice. He's coming to rescue us, die on the cross, and then he left, and the Bible says he's coming again to end it all, take us home, satisfy once and for all those longings. May we get that today.
Zechariah is a minor prophet. And at chapter 9, okay, I've skipped the first eight chapters. At chapter 9, I want you to look at one verse, verse 9. Rejoice greatly. Does everybody see that at the beginning? It's a turning point because if you look back to verse 1, this is judgment coming. 1 through 8 is the judgment coming upon God's people. But as you've seen by now, as we've already been through 10 minor prophets, that God often tells them of the judgments of judgment that's coming because of their disobedience, but then he reminds them that there is a salvation that they can trust in if they turn to God. So at verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly even though there is a judgment. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Speaking to his people. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, speaking to his people. Behold, look at this. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a neat verse. I hope you're familiar with that verse. I know you've heard it before, whether you're realizing where you've heard it before or not. You have heard this verse before. I'm, I'm sure if you've been in church, if you've ever been around Easter, you've heard it. The reason why you've heard it is because there's a passage in the New Testament called the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday passage, when Jesus rode on a donkey and entered into Jerusalem. This passage is so important, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for him to be crucified on the cross five days later. It is so important that all four gospels tell of the triumphal entry. That's rare. You don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all telling the same story many times. There's just a very, very few of those. But this passage, the triumphal entry passage, is in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, and it's in John. All four of those guys do that. That means it's really, really, really important. In Matthew's account and in John's account, they say that it is the fulfillment of this verse right here. When you heard Josh Womble read earlier from Matthew 21, that's what he read. And so I'd like for you to turn right now, because I just want you to see this, okay? Turn back to Matthew 21. Matthew is just two books away if you go right toward the end, and Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So I am asking you to turn there. Matthew 21, we're going to start reading in the first verse. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, that's pretty cool. I've preached that before, but Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows what they're going to find when they enter the city. Jesus knows what they're going to ask him. Jesus tells them what they should say when they ask him, but that's all not a big deal if you're talking about God. Of course he does. Verse 4, look what this says. Now, this is Matthew writing now about that story, that entry. This took place 
to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, which one? Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as he had directed them. So does everybody see that? Matthew's gospel, New Testament, Matthew, when he writes about the triumphal entry, he says, that's what Zechariah was talking about. We just saw Jesus ride a donkey in here, and when Jesus rode that donkey in here, that's what Zechariah was talking about. Who knew? A king riding on a donkey coming for us. They didn't really get it. They kind of got it, but they didn't really get it. So let me show you that a little bit better. Now turn all the way to John 12. So keep going. You got Matthew, then Mark. Past Mark is Luke. Past Luke is John. Let's look at John's account of this. Well. Oh, yeah. John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Just just real simple. This is why Joe's so good. What was the first song we sang today? Hosanna. Because it's Palm Sunday. And then they sang Hosanna when Jesus came on Palm Sunday. And today we sing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 13. So they took out branches of palm trees and went out to crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Does everybody see that? So some of them were saying, this is the king. Now that's important. Because as you know, a lot of them did not understand that he was the king. But on some levels, they're there with palm branches crying out, this is our king. All right, keep going. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, that is written in Zechariah. John also, like Matthew, knew the Old Testament, knew the Minor Prophets, knew Zechariah. And he tells us this triumphal entry is what Zechariah was talking about. It's amazing. It's fascinating. It was written way before it happened, and it came true, and they knew that. So it's praise God for that. Verse 16. His, listen to this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Y'all, there were people there that were understanding more than the disciples who had been with him for three years straight. That's interesting. There were people there cutting down palm branches and laying them down, taking off their clothes and laying them down as a sign of worship. This guy riding on this donkey is king, the king of Israel. And they knew that and they cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, even our king. They knew that, some of them did. Now, why? How could they? Look what it says. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So that's how the disciples came. But look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they, had heard, they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So I'm telling you that this triumphal entry, this Jesus coming back into Jerusalem and now moving toward the cross is huge. That's why it's Palm Sunday to us. It's a big deal. Let me turn back now to Zechariah chapter 9. And both Matthew and John tell us that that's what Zechariah was talking about. And on some levels, they knew that, and on some levels, they didn't. They certainly did after the resurrection. They certainly did after Christ had been living and then dying and then coming back to life. They knew it then. But see, the reason why there's even question or mm, what's going on here is because they wanted a king. They needed a king. Remember I talked about how we have all these longings? Well, Israel needed leadership. They needed a king over them. They had this whole history of good kings and bad kings, you know, good leadership, bad leadership, and they were always being told by God that there's a good leader coming. One of these days, you're going to get you an awesome king. He's going to lead you, and he'll be forever, right? These big things. Because they're always looking for it. To be a Jew, to be an Israelite, was to always be looking for God's king to finally come. Man, things will be so much better once he comes. Now, what you know by faith is that ultimately, that is in Jesus. And that is only going to happen inside the kingdom of heaven, the already not yet right now, but then ultimately in heaven one day. Jesus is the king of kings. But as they sought to figure this out, they were always looking for a king. And so some of them had come to understand this guy is. He's got power over death. He teaches like anybody else. He's unbelievable. This guy is that king. Now, did they understand that he was even going to die first before he was finished of everything that God had sent him to do? Well, we don't know. Maybe, sort of, some did. But I want to look back now at Zechariah 9, verse 9, just this verse, and grasp what's happening here. The minor prophets are preaching repentance. Zechariah is telling them that judgment's coming. If you're not going to live faithfully to God, then, then God's going to judge you. The only comfort that there is in life or in death or in religion or not in religion is to know that God loves you and God forgives you of your sins through his son Jesus that died in your place. That's the message. Minor prophets have been preaching that. And while you preach that people need to turn to God and get right with him, there is also the hope of God's love and mercy and grace that extends to everyone who will trust him. Well, at verse nine, it turns that direction. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, And I want to remind you, even as I said at the beginning, that perhaps understanding happiness and holiness, perhaps understanding, man, that just encourages me, that builds me up, that fulfills me, that satisfies me, that perhaps understanding rejoicing or reason to rejoice or cheerfulness or uplifting or shouting, those things that we think have often left us and are hidden from us are not found in the things that we think they are. Maybe they're found in a deeper emotional, spiritual rest that's in God. 
Maybe it's not the next uh, bonus or award or recognition or attention that's going to actually make you rejoice greatly and, and shout aloud, but maybe it's coming to have peace on the inside and being content. Maybe it's found in the way of obedience. Maybe it's found in a clean conscience. Maybe that it's our dirty conscience that is our issue more than our circumstances. And we keep trying to tell ourselves that our circumstances are what's really bothering us, and that's why I don't really have peace or, or joy. And if I could change my circumstances, then I'd change on the inside. But if you've lived even long enough, you would know that's not it. Because we have seen our circumstances change, and the inside of us has not been fixed. And so maybe it really is that the Bible's true, and when we get right with God and turn to him and surrender to him, that God does something on the inside of us so that now our perspective is love and rejoicing and shouting and contentment and peace, not because of the circumstances, but because God is bigger than the circumstances. Zechariah's message is about you need to repent and turn back to God. Remember, Haggai's message was like that too. But here he's telling them to rejoice. Well, why is he telling them to rejoice? Because, look what it says next. Your king is coming to you. And I know that you might be thinking, well, how long, how soon? And you know that they for sure were thinking, well, how long or how soon? And at some point, listen, you and I all have to deal with how long are you willing to wait, right? You ever been somewhere before and they made you wait and the next thing you know there's a long line and you said, well, I'll just wait. And, and somewhere there's like a, a line drawn in how long you'll wait in the line to where you say, okay, I'm getting out of line. And nothing's more frustrating than you waiting, wasting life and then getting out of line and never getting anywhere, Right? Like at the DMV and you wait forever or something like that, you know? Or if you get stuck behind a train that's like stopped on the, on the railroad tracks, you know, like, I'll just wait, hopefully it goes, and then it doesn't go, and you wait forever, and you finally have to see everybody do that three-point turn, five-point turn, seven-point turn. Some people are really bad about that, right? Turning around. They finally give up on waiting, you know what I mean? But waiting really depends on, listen, how valuable is the thing you're waiting on? Wouldn't you agree? I remember when me and Val went to have our first baby, JJ. I'm telling y'all the truth, y'all. We went to have him in 2007. We didn't have him until 2008. That's the honest truth. He was supposed to be born on December the 31st, 2007. We had a, uh, a scheduled C-section, right, on December the 1st, 2007, but he wasn't born until January 2nd, 2008. We waited for a long time in the hospital, and it never once dawned on me, Val, let's just go. You know, I'm tired of waiting. I don't like to wait. I'm, I'm getting impatient over here. Let's, let's just, I never thought about doing that. Why? Because if, listen, if what you're gonna get after the waiting is worth it, you'll wait forever, right? I hear that when a big ball game's coming up, people go set up tents and sit outside the arena for days or weeks just to get a ticket. They think it's worth it, Right? Depending on how valuable something is if you're going to wait. So when God tells a suffering, sinful, wayward people, your king is coming. The people have to figure out, do they believe that? 
Do they believe God? Do they trust him? And as you know, listen, when Zechariah ends and Malachi ends and the Old Testament ends, the Bible tells us that there's a 400-year period before Jesus comes. Y'all, from the end of the Old Testament to the birth of Christ is 400 years of nothing. No speaking from God, no messages from God, nothing. And you know what every believer had to do? Now, let me ask you something. Would it have been worth it? Yes. He died on the cross for their sins. It's totally worth it. And so he says, your king is coming to you. In the utmost love of God. In the amazing grace of God. Listen, folks. Every one of us are going through it right now. And some of us are going through it more than the others. And some of you right now have had breakdowns this week. And some of you all have had tears in your home this week. And some of you all feel like this may not be worth it. I tried waiting. And I don't know how long we have to wait until he comes again. Now, again, this is talking about the first coming, but I'm giving a little application now. And I don't know how long you're going to have to wait until heaven arrives. But please hear me. It is worth it. Christ is worthy. No matter how long you have to deal, suffer, wait, it is worth it. I don't know what you're going through. I know for some of you all, but whatever it is, it is worth it. Believe it, believe it, believe it. Now, I'm gonna tell you right now, you're not gonna have to wait 400 years because the Bible promises that at the moment you take your last breath, you're with him. And the Bible tells us that that is great, precious, better, so we have to ask ourselves, do you really believe that what God has promised us is true and it's that valuable? Because here he says, your king is coming to you. But then he does something that's just awesome about God and awesome about Zechariah. He spends the second half of the verse describing the king, just telling us a little bit about him, right? Look what it says. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they've already said he's king. He's over everything. The Bible describes him as the king of kings, lord to everything. But then it says he's righteous and this is the same thing as just here. He's righteous, he's just, and, and, and this is him. He's altogether good, Everything he does is right. Everything he will do in the future will be right. It's what should be done. He's, he's just. And you know what's so good about that and why it says it there? Because if you're really talking about a leader, right? I mean, if, you're, if you need a principal at a school, you want them to do the right thing, right? If you want a boss at a company, you want them to do the right thing, right? If you want a president of the United States, you want or you at least would hope that he would do the right thing. If you're talking about a God, 
shouldn't he do the right thing with all that he has responsibility for? Shouldn't God, when he comes, our forever king, when he finally comes back, whenever that is, after all the waiting, shouldn't he be the one who will always, in every single situation, do what needs to be done, do it the right way, do it the proper way, in the loving way, in the sincere way? Shouldn't he? Yes, he should. And guess what? The Bible wants us to find great comfort in God will not make one single mistake. Whatever it is that you long to see made right in the future, it will. It will, it will, it will. He will make everything right. He is that way. He is that way. That is his character. That's what he's like. Jesus Christ is God. God and Jesus are righteous. They are just Find comfort in knowing that whatever injustice or whatever unrighteousness that we see now and we deal with now, it will not stay that way forever. The righteous one is coming. And when he came the first time, they saw all sorts of glimpses of that. Let me just give me an example. There is scene after scene of Jesus hanging out with people that sexually were a mess. There is scene after scene of Jesus hanging out with people who pridefully were a mess. He would be in their houses. And you know what? The religious people would stand back and say, look at him. He hangs out with sinners. Look at him. He's going to get dirty hanging out with them. And they would say that sort of stuff to him. Didn't bother him at all. Didn't bother him at all. He wasn't even afraid to touch people who had diseases. He's so good and right, it doesn't bother him. But when he would see like some religious judgment people that were not close to God, they just acted like it, he would blast them. He would put them in their place. He would act up at them. The Bible said he got angry at them. He didn't sin. He was angry without sinning, but he did, Right? It's just a beautiful picture of how he here on earth was an example to us of modeling rightness, righteousness, justness. He did everything the way it should be done. You ever thought about all these tough issues we've got going on? And you know, people will say, well, you know, what, what would you do? I mean, what do you say to that? And I find myself all the time going, man, I, I don't know. That's, life's hard. Life is really hard, man. There's a lot of situations, you know? I see like a kid who's getting in trouble on a, on a, on a school team or something, and somebody says, well, man, what, what would you do with that kid? And part of me says, man, if you've broken the rules, you've been warned, he probably needs to be kicked off the team. I get that, right? But then I hear like, man, if he, if he gets kicked off the team, then he's, he's got nobody now that loves him. He's got nobody now that invests in him, and where's he gonna go from here, Right? And don't get me wrong, I mean, policy is policy. You do what you've already set in place that you should do. But I'm just trying to let you know that there are times in life where you're like, man, that's tough. It's really tough. And you've all heard somebody say before, like, you know, I'll forgive you once, but I won't forgive you twice. But Jesus says we're supposed to forgive so many times, right? And Jesus paints this picture for us of what it's like to be right. But the first time he was on earth was not the ultimate. He was just telling us, hey, this is the guy, and we can trust him. And when he died for us, it ought to wake us up to say, that's who I want to be Lord and King over my life. He came for me. Now I'm going to bow to him and live for him. But it's the next time that he comes where you and I see it all completely right. Y'all, there's coming a day where there will be no injustice, no unrighteousness. He will have dealt with every bit of it, leveled the playing field, squared away everything, worked it all right, put the people this way that should go this way, put the people this way that should go this way, all by his grace, all by his plan, all by his sovereign love, and that should comfort you like crazy. 
no matter what you've got going on in your life. And again, we do have a lot going on in our lives. Some of y'all have so much going on. Some of y'all, I'm just amazed that you are here today because I know that you're so burdened. And you should be able to say, I'm gonna trust him because he's God and he loves me and he's right. He's always right. And it may be a while before I fully see all that, but it can be right now that you feel it or get it or understand it on the inside. And that will empower you until it's official, until it's done. He's righteous. Look what it says next. Having salvation is he. I mean, you know, you love to hear me say, or or actually, y'all don't love to hear me say, I love to say that the Bible is uh, hard to understand in a lot of places because we hear that all the time. But sometimes it's really easy to understand. The coming king riding on a horse, a donkey, that the New Testament tells us that's Jesus, has salvation. He has salvation. So if you're wondering, man, how do I get to heaven, or what do I do when I die, or what's after life, the Bible says he has salvation. Okay, I, I don't know if you're afraid of death or not. I don't know if you've already prearranged at the funeral home. I don't know if you think about that. I don't know if you're carrying a lot of guilt right now. Like, I know I've sinned. don't know what to do about it. Listen, God has salvation. He's given it to his son, Jesus. When he died on the cross, he was taking on the sins of the world to save people from their sins. If you want salvation, go to the Jesus that has it. He gives it freely. He has salvation. And then look what it says here at the end. This is the part that baffles everybody. This is the part that confused the Jews. He is a king, and he is coming to them, but not necessarily what you were thinking. If we'd have done a little exercise here at the beginning of the sermon, and I just said, I want everybody to take their bulletin out and draw me a picture of a king. 90% of y'all would have drawn a crown, right? 90% of y'all would have drawn some type of robe because that's what kings look like. And don't get me wrong, Jesus has a crown and Jesus has a robe, but he's just not put it on fully yet. You'll see him in it one day. But when he came the first time, he came to do work. He came to do business. He came to redeem his people. There wasn't a crown there. There wasn't a robe there. The only time you saw him in a crown and a robe was in his complete humiliation as they were also spitting on him. They were fake worshiping him as they made fun of him and mocked him. And they took that back off of him. The Bible describes the coming king as humble. So humble that he's not riding in on a big stallion. He's not riding in on these big, strong, beautiful horses. He's coming in on a donkey, a donkey, a lowly and humble, small animal that it almost looks silly to ride, right? It does. It almost looks silly to ride a donkey. Now, you can. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. One of the most glorious truths about our Lord Jesus is that he's humble. When he could have said, I came here, everybody serve me, he 
said, no, that's not it. I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what he's like. On his last night before he died, right? So go back to the bucket list stuff, right? If tonight was your last night and you know you're dying on Monday, what would you do tonight? Right? You know what he did on his last night and he knew he was dying tomorrow? You know what he did? He washed everybody's feet that he had dinner with. They tried to get him to stop. They tried to say, no way. That's what he did. Jesus' idea of fun and happy and holy and all of that is awesome. It's bigger than ours. That's what he's like. He's just, he's just humble. He's awesome. Because he came to die on the cross for our sins. Palm Sunday is about him entering in. Palm Sunday is about him coming to Jerusalem so that he could be the king of his people once he dies on the cross. But check this out, and we'll end with this. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. Look at this. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah, in two verses, has brought in his first coming and has brought in his second coming. God wrote the Bible. God wrote Zechariah through Zechariah. And while verse 9 is without question about his first coming and the triumphal entry on his way entering Jerusalem on the way to the cross because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that, verse 10 is about what it'll be like when he comes a second time. He'll speak peace to every single country. You know, I watch the news and I see about how much Venezuela is suffering. And just last Sunday, we prayed for them. And I hear about these bombings that are happening in other countries and the famines that are happening in other countries. And I hear about the civil wars that are going on in other countries. And I hear about like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people dying like that all the time. And I think just what our brother Jose prayed last week, I think they need now, they need a lot of things, and I want us to get better at figuring out what all we can do and how the world can help and what, how, what could be done. And those are hard decisions to make, as we all know. But what they really need most is God. And the Bible tells us here that through Jesus, there will be a day when he speaks peace with every nation. Now, it doesn't mean every person it means the people that will believe him. It means the people that will say it's worth the wait. It means the people that will say he's right, he's true, and it's worth it. And I'm going to believe him. Now, you know why they were all coming back to Jerusalem, right? Why were they all coming back to Jerusalem there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why did they triumphantly enter they weren't, okay, this wasn't a parade called the triumphal entry. They were just coming back to Jerusalem. It was Passover. They were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Celebrate the deliverance from the book of Exodus when God was gonna bring judgment on Egypt for bringing them as slaves. 
And before God came and judged Egypt, he let the people go. But before he let the people go, he said, hey, I'm about to destroy them. If anybody doesn't want to be destroyed, he left it wide open. If anybody doesn't want to be destroyed, here's what I want you to do. Go get a lamb, kill it, take the blood of the lamb that you just sacrificed, take the blood of the lamb, put it on your door, and when I come through with judgment, every single house that's got blood on the door, I'll forgive. Simple as that. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything good. Just show me that you believe. Just show me that you trust me. I won't actually kill anybody if there's blood on every door. I'm bringing judgment, but if you listen to me, you won't be judged. You'll escape death, he says there. That's what the Passover is. And so every year, Jews celebrate the Passover, and they travel into Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and they go find a lamb, and they sacrifice, and they say, man, God delivered us. Well, you know why Jesus was coming to Jerusalem? To celebrate the Passover. Zacharias wanting us to know, that's the lamb you ought to choose to. That's the lamb sacrificed for you. Don't go home and put blood over the door from a lamb. But go home saying, he came for me. Go home today saying it's Easter season and he gave himself, he shed his blood for me. Man, life is hard, life is heavy. I can never seem to get it right. I'm, I'm, I'm taking two steps backward every time I take one step forward in progress. That's the way it feels, but he loves me. He came for me. He's coming again for me. He died for me. He's righteous, he's just, he's humble, he's lowly. He rode a donkey. So he could die on the cross for my sins. And I believe it. I believe it. My whole life is shaped by believing him. That's what God wants us to know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the minor prophets and for Palm Sunday. Thank you, God, that as they came to celebrate the Passover, Christ was making it known he is that Passover lamb. Father, thank you for Sunday mornings where we get to get together and do this. Father, work mightily every shower for over a year now.